millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Roald Dahl rewrites Row. Should the language in the classic children's books be changed? We debate here in studio shortly. Dining out in Dublin is more expensive than in Paris, London and Rome. Are you happy to pay €80 for a three-course meal? And later, will Holly Cairns be the next Social Democrats leader as Catherine Murphy and Roisin Shortall step down? start with some breaking news tonight. A former GA star has been arrested by Gardaí over alleged fraud offences. Gardaí say the man was arrested in connection with an ongoing investigation into allegations that he raised money by deception under alleged false pretenses. In other breaking news tonight, an off-duty police officer has been shot and injured in Oma in County Tyrone. His condition is not known at this point. Security forces are investigating the attack. We're going to have more on this a little later in the show. But moving on, the latest editions of Roald Dahl's much-loved children's books have been altered to remove words such as fat, ugly and mad. The Roald Dahl Story Company, which manages the copyright of Roald Dahl's books and collaborated with Puffin to update the texts, have said the irreverence and sharp-edged spirit of the original books had not been lost. However, the changes have sparked a debate around censorship and political correctness. Well, here to discuss this further, Deputy Political Editor of the Irish Independent, Hugh O'Connell, broadcaster and Ocean FM presenter, Claire Ronan, broadcaster George Hook, journalist Owen Curry, and via Skype this evening, psychotherapist and author Joanna Fortune. You are all very welcome to the programme. Hugh, I want to start with you because there's been quite an extensive revision of some of these books. Bring mm. us through some of the other uh, examples. So there's, I mean, the first instance is references to wigs. The witches were, witches were wigs. Dahl had written, you can't go around pulling the hair of every lady you meet. Even if she's wearing gloves, just you try it and see what happens. And that's been changed to, besides, there are plenty of other reasons why women might wear wigs and there is certainly nothing wrong with that. And, um, Fat phobia has been a big one, but there's also female characters. Dahl's original version of The Witches, women were described as being supermarket cashiers or letter writers for businessmen. In the new edition, women are top scientists and business owners themselves. Electrocution turns into ejection in George's Marvelous Medicine. Dahl had written, it was exactly as though someone had pushed an electric wire through the underneath of her chair and switched on the current. The new version says it was as though someone had switched her chair with a fighter jet seat and pressed the eject button. So I suppose it's kind of modernised okay. in some respects with, with a fighter jet. And it goes jet. on and on. I think there's yeah. a reference to Oompa Loompas as small men. That's gone. They're now small yeah. people. Gender-neutral terms, I suppose, is interesting in, in the context of, of, of that issue. Uh, references to female characters have disappeared. Miss Trunchbull and Matilda, once a, once a most formidable 
a female is now a most formidable woman. Uh, Gender-neutral terms have been added in places. Charlie and the Chocolate Factories, as you said, Umpalumpas are small men. They're now, or they were small men. They're now small people. Okay. And the Cloud Men and James and the Giant Peach have become Cloud people. Okay. So who deemed this <clears throat> language sort of inappropriate? Who said what needs to go and what needs to change? Well, I mean, I'm not entirely clear myself, but I mean, it, it does seem to be that these texts have been adapted for, you know, what the publisher has said is, has, you know, a more modern world, a world in which I suppose we don't talk as sort of brutishly about these matters as Roald Dahl uh, had originally written. But I suppose the issue is, you know, how far do we go on that? And how far do we go toward, like, you know, and does it stop at Roald Dahl? Does it, do we move on, on to other texts, other historic children's books? I mean, there's... There was there's reports a, that they had, that Puff and the publishers yeah. had brought in and had worked with a charity and had mm. brought in sensitivity readers. People I think so, yeah. People who scanned the texts yeah. I mean, there's no phrases doubt, or words that yeah. might be deemed hurtful or... or I suppose there's no doubt there's been a, a high degree of consultation in relation to this, um, but it's something which has attracted a lot of controversy. I mean, you have the Prime Minister in, in the UK today commenting on it, disagreeing with this. Uh, I'd say for various reasons. It might be mm. a personal view that he holds, but also obviously there's a whole wing of his of the Conservative Party that would be uh, very against political correctness and, and PC gone mad and wokeism and all of that. Um, but, but I mean, also, you know, I was quite taken by what Salman Rushdie had to say, uh, the author of the Satanic Verses, a man who knows more than most about the uh, persecution that comes with writing uh, texts which can offend people. In his case, his text offended an entire uh, population of, of, of people of the Islamic faith or some people with it of the Islamic faith. And he said that this was the wrong decision, um, which I thought was interesting in, in, that, in that context. Uh, you would disagree with Salman Rushdie. You don't think this is a wrong decision and you don't think this is wokeness gone mad. Claire, why? Because the people that are reading these books are aged between seven and nine, and this is a very important age. These are their formative years. And the use of language is very important. And I've just finished, actually, a series of documentaries with teenagers, and I was shocked at how important language is to them. More the, important than it would have been to, to us, our generation. To what we say. You know, in fact, going back to the wig situation, they said not all women who wear wigs are witches. Like, a lot of people are wearing wigs at the moment, and you give your seven-year-old a book and he reads something like that, he or she, what does he think? Now, look, they didn't change the stories. They made the main characters a little bit less grotesque than they were. I mean... You know, a lot of people are coming out and they're very angry about it. I actually think they were dead right. And if you look at, at his work and how he handled his work, he did change a lot of his own work over the years. He did edit himself, He did edit he? himself. He also wrote these stories for his children, his grandchild, his third grandchild. He wrote Matilda at the same time as, you know, she was born. So there was some... Maybe she was a bit like Matilda, I don't know. However, I think... Um, the family themselves had started this process before they sold for all the millions to Netflix. And remember that Netflix are interested in making money, yeah. and this could be part of all of that too. Um, Claire, when you, when you read these books, or your children would have re read these books, you know, whatever, 10, 15 years ago, and your children are growing up, were you conscious of the language? Did you read it at the time and think, mm, I'm a bit uncomfortable with this? No. I so we've not. changed. Yeah. Our attitudes have I think, changed. I think that the younger generation to me, and much younger than that, have changed completely. They're much more aware of inclusivity. They're much more aware of different sexual orientations in primary school and in young ages okay. in secondary school than we were. Uh, George, this is about making books more inclusive. And this is what the Roald Dahl Foundation wanted. Um, 
This is horse manure, right? In 1946, um, there was a book published called 1984 by George Orwell. It was a terrifying picture of a future of thought police, of dictatorship, of, of uh, the, the population being told what to read, what to say, what to look at. In that book, and I have to paraphrase it because I haven't got it with me, statues will be removed, history will be rewritten, paintings will be repainted, there will no longer be history. It's here. It is now here. Interestingly, even though, no, sorry, George, even though they just the point, I suppose, that the publishers have made is the essence, the spirit of the book oh, are exactly the same. No, they're, you they're made this sound minor no, modifications. You made this that's, that's sound. the point they've made. No, you made this sound very reasonable. You said the publishers have brought in sensitivity readers to look at this. Now we know, and we categorically know about these sensitivity readers. We know that they are barely out of their teens. We know that they were chosen on the basis of previous trauma. Do we know that? Sexual, do, yes, do, do we, we have, do. Is there evidence of that? Where Absolutely. is that? Absolutely. By your Daily Telegraph today, an interview with one of them. That's, that's one individual quoted in the Daily Telegraph today. Well, that's and what whistleblowers are. That's what whistleblowers are. But, but, I mean, George, you made the comparison. All right, let me okay. finish. Sorry, that. excuse me. Let me, I didn't interrupt you. No, OK, go for it. The, the point now is that if you change this and you can play around with children's books, now you have to... Now Shakespeare's next on the list. Now the greatest walk in the, in the English don't... language, Ulysses, is next on the list. You, you, Already, you... the Tate Gallery, the Tate Gallery is not hanging pictures on the basis of their quality. Hogarth! One of the great British painters. They don't talk. He sits on a chair. But but they talk about the chair being okay. used okay. by boats to bring slaves into England. George, don't some contemporary, actually many contemporary productions of Shakespeare, as you mentioned now, they edit out a lot of their racially derogatory lines. And Shakespeare remains, you know, uh, sort of played out in theatres around the world and people can enjoy it with just a line or two edited out. The essence remains the same, but all offence is removed. You can't compare Shakespeare to this situation. But this is, the, this is to use a great old phrase, the thin end of the wedge. And if, if we see the Tate Gallery, as we speak, Trinity College, as we speak, Trinity right. College is proposing to remove the greatest philosopher okay. this country has ever okay. produced from its library. Okay, let me just let you, from you, its you, library. Let's get back in there. started with the comparison to 1984, which, correct me if I'm wrong, is about government and author authoritarian governments correct. doing this, implementing this. There's no evidence that the government had any involvement with what um, the publisher decided to do here. So the comparison is completely false. And you're talking about children aged between seven and nine. That's so, why they've changed the words. But I suppose the point that he is making, the point that he's making, uh, Claire, is that this is the thin end of the wedge. Where do you stop? Well, where do you stop? This is the way the world do, is now. Do we just do, of do we go back and just alter well, everything well, what Claire, that has been certain? What insensitive or inappropriate? You know, do we go back and revise all texts, all movies, all TV programmes? Over that perhaps... time, that is going to happen.
the world mm. has changed the way the next generation okay. thinks well, is different. Uh, oh, and that's just the way it is. Things are different, mm. that's just the way it is. OK, the, let's start off by saying the integrity of an artistic work should not be interfered with, but there's nothing new about this. Mm. Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice probably would be stopped by an editor now. They, Fagan in Dickens would probably, somebody would have said this is anti-Semitic. And we have examples of works, Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, regarded as anti-church, big tracts of it taken out when it was published, being put back in again. What gives me great hope out of this is that children are great at finding what's a little bit naughty, a little bit risque, a little bit not what they're supposed to be reading. The history of children's literature is full of people opining, this is what children should be reading, Lives of the Saints in the Convent Library, but, the Victorian but, books. But they always go are and you saying, go sorry, after the rascally stuff. Okay, just because they will go after Roald Dahl's rascally stuff. There should be stuff. no revision at all. That It's all sacred monuments that must be protected and never touched. Is that what you're saying? In the case of art, that, that would be absolutely my position. Now, there is always a question of where does it stop, which, where does Shakespeare stop and Roald Dahl begin? And I do think that Roald Dahl did something which challenged, turned children's literature on its head, so, and he has to be respected okay, for doing that. What, what is the benefit, I suppose, for children reading about ugly people or fat people? What's to be gained from leaving those phrases in? What is to be gained by leaving the phrases in is exactly what the editors are trying to achieve. Creating the question, is this, uh, is this acceptable? Is this an acceptable description for Augustus in Charlie okay. the Chocolate that he's enormously fat? Maybe it is not an acceptable, but Roald Dahl isn't saying that. He's throwing it into... Uh, context of a children's book where the children, and they're very good at questioning. I okay. read Roald Dahl to my daughter. Every, so, so this, right, every, every grotesque character is fat in the, in the books. And that's why they changed it. And there, Owen, let you respond to that? Yeah, absolutely, but there are uh, there are children's uh, oh, children's the history of children's literature is full of the little prejudices, the casual racism. And are we not reinforcing those? Enid Blyton's world was so far removed from, and some of the casual comments that were made but, would be unacceptable but they were changed. now. Okay, but are we not reinforcing those casual prejudices by allowing these books to be republished in, well, their, in their original uh, format? Well, uh, let's take Julius Caesar, right? Julius Caesar says. Young Cassius has a lean and hungry look. He is not to be trusted. So are you now going to ban... If, if you're worried about fat people, is now every man under 12 stone weight not to be trusted? This is literature. I mean, it, the greatest philosopher that's ever produced Berkeley. They're going to remove his name from, from the library in Trinity. Okay. I presume they're going to suggest to California that their greatest university, the University of California in Berkeley, that they change that as well. Okay. You can't do it. OK, I want to go to Joanna Fortune, who is standing by listening to the discussion here in studio. And some of the points have been made uh, by our panel, Joanna. Look, that this is important for children to leave these in because children themselves can make their own assessment about whether it's right or wrong or uncomfortable. What do you think? 
I actually can see pros and cons for all of it. I mean, largely when I was listening to Claire speaking there, you know, she's absolutely right. Changing somebody from a character being fat, being described as enormous or in Matilda, instead of referring to mothers and fathers saying parents, isn't actually changing anything in that story, any of the themes, any of the beauty in those stories. And I should say, Kira, you know, I grew up on Roald Dahl books. I read Roald Dahl books here at home. I love those books. I think what Roald Dahl does is incredible. And for us, and I think it's amazing, here we are, a group of adults on late night panel television talking about books, talking about children's books. And it's because they're our books and we have that ownership over them. And that's really, really important. And if we want, which I think I'm getting from everyone on the panel, that these books should continue to have a place on children's bookshelves and children's lives, then we have to acknowledge that some minor changes that do not compromise the themes or the characters or the lessons in that story. And I think what Roald Dahl does beautifully is he does talk about adults as being awful people and grotesque. And it teaches children a really important lesson that not all grown-ups are safe and not all grown-ups have children's interests at heart. That, that continues. But is there something a little bit ridiculous, Joanna, about saying we're going to remove the word fat? We find that offensive mm -hmm. as a description for somebody. But we leave in the word enormous. That's not offensive. I mean, enormous. It, well, they're they are different words. I mean, I, I totally get your point, but they are different words because enormous is about size. I think actually, though, one of the ways that this, this editing and we do need to be careful about this because license to re-edit cannot be limitless. There does need to be boundaries because actually the integrity of the story needs to be protected. And in changing one or two words, we need to ensure that new ideas aren't inserted into literature that has been there because actually that does children a disservice. We have to trust that children are smart, intelligent beings and that they're able to make sense of things. They're able to deal with difficult okay. themes and they're able to think that out loud. And the age yeah. groups we're talking about will be reading with parents as well. And it gives us the opportunity to actually say to our children, gosh, I wonder how it would feel if someone said that okay. to you. And that's not a very kind thing. And to break these themes down with our children. OK, um, there have been difficulties to you, haven't there, with some of the old Disney movies. I mean, there's now a warning, I think, has gone in front yeah. of a number of the, the classic Disney movies because they're felt a whole sort of racist yeah. um, language within them. Yeah, but I mean, I suppose putting a warning in um, is different from altering it or changing it. Um, and I suppose that's kind of the key issue here is that do we want to be in, operate in an environment where we're kind of revising and changing these texts? And I think another point that needs to be made is, you know, Changing newly printed editions of Rodal books to you know all the changes that are that are outlined here on the piece of paper in front of me, like that's not going to limit the access of individuals to get the no. book, the original the books in their original format. In and fact, they exist. in fact, there could be the argument yeah. could there not you that actually it only encourages children to seek out For the original. Sure. Yeah, I think Owen made that point. You know, so I I think that you know warnings and you know trigger warnings and all these kind of things that are now seem seem commonplace. Particularly, particularly on old shows that are put up on yeah. the various players that, that exist now. You know, I think one exists for Faulty Towers, for example, uh, because some of the stuff in Faulty Towers would be considered enormously offensive nowadays, even though uh, you know, I personally find it hilarious. I'm sure many people on the panel here is, do as well. Um, that's probably a more balanced way of going at it rather than this sort of um, would, evolving would, censorship. Would you have any, had any issue with that, George Hook, with a, with a warning at the front of a Roald Dahl book? 
But I mean, to you say may, the language in this no, book the, has not been. The thing is, uh, like, yet. I'm a fan of old movies, mm -hmm. and like, I, there's a there's a channel three to eight called Talking Pictures, and they're all old movies, so I'm glued to it. And almost every single film has a start to it, which says, you know, this contains language, ideas, or principles of a different era. Yes. But like, we. So, but, so if, if they'd done that at the start of the old doll books, would you have any issue with that? Oh, but we have a problem with children reading. I think that's a reasonable comment to make, that today's children read less than previous generations. Yes. And what we are trying to do, in my view, is make lit children's literature, in a way almost, less acceptable. So some parents sees this book on the shelf and says, I can't possibly buy that for my child because I read somewhere that is dreadful. Do you think that would really happen? No. Yeah. I think that's absolute rubbish. Less of the rubbish should be done. Do you think this is the point of this? This would somehow well, turn I, I, children I don't... away from books. One sure way to get children reading is to tell them that there's something really dodgy in the book and that the editors and the adults and the world doesn't want them to see it. We had uh, libraries banning Harry Potter and the whole Harry Potter machine got really got uh, driven by the resistance to the concept and the people who objected to the fact that there was magic in these books. The children love the little rascally touch. Roald Dahl was brilliant at it. And you're okay, trying so to let's excise just go back it. To that. That's a point that's been made a couple of times, Claire, that this is sort of the rascally touch. It's, it's harmless, in other words. Look, when you in read fact, it as a it. child, you, you, you don't see the the darkness in his books. But if you read them again as an adult, you begin to see the darkness. But just getting back to the uh, warning point, um, I think, I'm just remembering reading books to my own children. I'd read the warning at the beginning and maybe talk to them about why there's a warning. But halfway through the book, they wouldn't remember that. So that's why I think they were right to change the words. Because you don't, at seven years of age, you don't really understand what a warning is about. Is there, is there a danger here, Claire, that we, you know, have to alter these books repeatedly as people's sensitivities change. Well, and that it that's all a becomes a little farcical. That's a good point, but they did change Enid Blyton. But mm. I think where George's point is is another situation where, I mean, statues are coming down because of things people did in their past, or that's a historical thing. That's a different subject. I think to this. No, it's not it's a not different subject. Because, I, mean, I wouldn't have yeah. come on this programme tonight, to be honest, uh, if, if I thought we were going to talk about Roald Dahl in that sense, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's the most important thing that impacts on my life. But what I do know is that this is happening across the globe. I know I'm going to be talking to my grandchildren in 10 years' time and I'm going to be telling them about a television programme called The Tonight Show, which is no longer on television because they can't find a panellist who's willing to hold an opinion because but, they're terrified of what will be said or written about them. Uh, that I mean, is where we are is, headed. Is that, is that true, is do you terrifying. think, you? Is there a risk of that, that basically we become so conscious of offending 
people offending anybody, so conscious of everyone's sensitivities no, I, that we kill all debates. I don't think so, no. I mean, we're having a debate about it here tonight. There's, it has generated a lot of debate online, in, on, the, on the airwaves. Did you the newspaper that sacked one of its columnists for making George, a like, comment? Let's not get into this now. No, but you did. Well, 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 what do you do with the words of a Roald okay, Dahl well, I, don't, I don't think it's yeah. wise I mean, that we on. get into that, and I, I'm not sure which... But he used the words from a Roald Dahl book. OK, well, maybe we'll talk about that another time. But, like, you do make a fair point in the sense it's not, it's not completely divorced from the mm. issue of, uh, you know... The Berkeley wider issue. And the wider yeah, issue, because, like, if you look at one of the changes to Matilda, they've removed the reference to Joseph Conrad and, and Ernest Hemingway. Uh, or, sorry, yeah, uh, uh, Kipling. Kipling, rather, because both of them are now been accused of, of racism and, and reappraisals of their work. So those references have gone. Uh, and that's part of, I suppose, the wider conversation that we've been having about some of these people in, in recent years. OK, what is interesting here, Hugh, just finish up, is that publishers in some other European countries have refused yeah. to do this. The French, for example. The French. To do Why? It. What's their Well, I mean, reason? I think they've, they've taken the that view that it, it doesn't uh, merit changing and that you shouldn't... Uh, mess is the wrong word, but certainly that you shouldn't be going back on these texts um, because this has been... Uh, decided by the publisher uh, after discussion with, with, with the family in the focus group. I mean, I think the interesting point is, is that, you know, Rodal was making changes to these books as he lived, but he's dead. He's been dead for 32 years now. And I think, you know, that's the point at which we say the text should lie and they should not be changed because they're works of art. He is the author of those arts, uh, those pieces of yeah. art, okay. and, and perhaps they should be left as is. All right, look, we're going to have to leave that there for now. My thanks to Joanna for joining us. The rest of the panel are staying with us. And after the break, more from the breaking news story this evening that an off-duty police officer has been shot and injured in Oma. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You are very welcome back. Well, in breaking news tonight, the PSNI have reported that an off-duty policeman has been shot in Oma in County Tyrone. For the latest on this, I'm joined now by journalist Amanda Ferguson. Amanda, thank you for speaking to us. This is just breaking in the last hour or so. Um, where did this incident happen? What do we know at this point? Well, we know that uh, just after eight o'clock, the Northern Ireland Ambulance Service were uh, called to the Slevard area of Kelly Clogher uh, to a shooting incident and a male was transported uh, to hospital at Alton Galvin Hospital uh, where uh, he's being treated at the moment. Now, my understanding is that the officer, they're trying to stabilise him at the moment. He may have been shot up to four times um, and that it's possible that he may be stabilised and transferred up to Belfast, but that um, hasn't been confirmed just yet. The, the 
DSNI said that a servant police officer had been shot um, at a sports complex. Uh, Tom Elliott, the Ulster Unionist uh, Party MLA, had indicated that uh, the officer uh, may have been shot in front of young people uh, towards the end of uh, a football coaching session um, at the sports complex. And also, uh, Angarda Shikana also said that they're uh, working closely uh, with the PSNI um, and that uh, they're responding to that ongoing incident that happened uh, in the north uh, earlier this evening. Okay, so just bring us back to um, where this happened. You were saying it's at a sports complex uh, in the Sleeve Ard area. What type of area is that? Yes, it's a, a, an area of Oma that would be uh, well used, well served by the local community. I think that's uh, why the you know there's been such a revulsion um, at the at the incident across the political spectrum. We've heard uh, from uh, Sinn Féin leaders, from SDLP leader, from the Tánaiste, from the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, everybody indicating that their thoughts are with the officer at this time. Now it's not yet clear whether this is uh, linked. This incident is linked to dissident republicanism or whether it's perhaps uh, linked to an organised crime gang. But I think just because we're at the early stages of the, of the investigation and it's just so fast moving at the moment that that will all become apparent soon. OK, but we do understand at this point that this individual was being targeted. Yes, well, the, the, the officer is a serving uh, PSNI officer, quite a senior officer that would have been involved investigating quite serious crime. Um, I have uh, been made aware, perhaps, of uh, his identity, but it's not appropriate to share that at the moment. Uh, those details will come in, in due course. But I think now that just the, the sort of flurry of activity from politicians condemning what's happened and there's a heavy police presence uh, at the scene as they continue their investigation. And I suppose speak to all of those people that were in the surrounding area at the time. Right, look, we'll leave it there. Uh, thank you for that, Amanda Ferguson, and we'll bring you any more uh, news on that as the programme goes on. Well, moving on, a survey ranking the cost of dining out in 20 European cities was released today. Dublin ranking 10th, more expensive than Paris, London and Rome. This comes just a day after the government confirmed that hospitality would continue to benefit from a reduced VAT rate of 9% until August. So is it down to the cost of running a business here or a case of rip-off republic? Hugh, Claire, George and Owen are still with me and I'm also joined on the line by restaurant owner Paul Travo, and just very quickly, Hugh, they were examining sort of a mid-range restaurant, weren't they, in these capital cities? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think the result is quite stark, um, uh, certainly from, from our own perspective. Uh, you know, it is expensive to go out in Dublin. It is expensive to go for a meal in Dublin. And I think that um, that's uh, something that, you know, the government, in extending the VAT rate, did so, uh, the VAT rate reduction, I should say, did so on the basis of uh, a heavy lobbying campaign from the industry itself. Uh, and I think you know, the industry is basically saying, look, if you put it up, it will cost jobs and it will make everything more expensive for us and that will drive away consumers. Um, but that's, you know, that, that coming at the same time that we're as, as expensive as we are, I think is, it will be galling to a lot, of, a lot of people at home. Yeah, oh, like I know a lot of the times there's comparisons made in this programme, oh, you can go out for a meal in Portugal or you can go out for a meal from Spain and you say, look, that's not fair, you're not comparing like with like. But are we comparing like with like now when we're looking at London, Rome, Paris and we're saying Dublin... The offering in Dublin is more expensive than all of those. How can you justify that? The way it works is Southern Europe is considerably cheaper for eating out than Northern Europe. Yep. When we're compared with Northern Europe, we don't tend to finish um, top of the chart. When we're compared with Spain and Portugal, which everybody who goes on holidays there says, 
or I could get my meal so much uh, cheaper out there. It's loads of factors come into uh, play. We're, we're somewhere about mid-chart. We may be creeping up and we may have to keep a close eye on the uh, tourism destinations that we compete with. We don't really compete uh, for the, with the restaurants in Spain and Portugal. We do compete with, for instance, Scotland, which has that mist and mountain and golf and all of those offerings that we do. That's where we have to watch. There's another really important thing. But I suppose just to be clear on this survey wasn't looking and doesn't say, you know, we're cheaper or we're more expensive rather than Portugal and Spain. This says we're more expensive than London, Paris and Rome. That's Dublin. A... Is the offering here significantly better? No, it's it, it, the, way rest, the way decisions are made about restaurants is that, oddly enough, having cheaper food and cheaper eating out isn't something that uh, drives people into the country. But there's a load of factors here. One of them um, is quite clearly, and our restaurateur will be joining us, uh, the cost of doing business. They will always claim that. Mm. But something else is also important. The tradition of restaurants and the tradition of eating out and the volumes that that generates is something that we were late into the game. It's only in the mid-80s that we started doing it. And I think a lot of our obsession with restaurant pricing in Ireland compared with other countries is it uh, doesn't take into account that the mass, the volume, the sort of... That they don't uh, have it. That we don't have it here okay. to the same extent that other cities do. George, do you think Dublin can justify being more expensive than those other cities that I just mentioned? Well, we can fix it in a heartbeat, OK? Uh, we just reduced the population to 3.5 million. We have 100,000 people emigrating every, every year. Our economy is in, is in the manure, and therefore it Price will be down. cheaper. Oh. To go. What we now have is a First Nation economy. We actually have probably a better economy than the United Kingdom for the first time in our history. We are expensive. In, and Owen clearly pointed it out for us. There's the cost of doing business. We're in the middle of an inflationary crisis. But isn't um, there an inflationary crisis in London too? There probably is. But, like, we're competing with these countries. 60 years ago, they, Dublin had one Indian restaurant and two Chinese restaurants. That's where we were. And they were pretty cheap. For those people uh, who uh, remember old currencies, it was two and sixpence for your lunch in the Chinese restaurant in Wicklow Street. That was times, expensive. Times have changed. You were flushed then, George. You can't have a budget like we had a number of weeks ago of 11 billion. And, and sort of think, well, at the same time, we actually can live quite cheaply here. We ought to be... Okay. Actually, it's a, I, I don't want to appear clever or smart or anything like that, but we actually are very lucky. That's what's worrying us, is having it to pay 80 quid for our dinner. We could have an awful lot of worse scenarios. OK, but the truth is, Paul Travaux, that our viewers at home are thinking, hold on a second... You're telling me that it is more expensive to eat in Dublin City as opposed to Paris City, where they're paying 20% on VAT. Here they're paying 9% of VAT. It's rip-off, Republic. It's price gouging back. That's what people are going to think. Well, Kira, how are you doing? If I did a survey and went to Mercedes, Porsche and McLaren, I could tell you the average price of a car is €100,000. They come out with the average price of a three-course meal in Dublin is €80. Euro. I could bring you on the town to 20 different restaurants, and that's simply not true. So it's very unfair as to what they've come out with saying the average price of a dinner is €80. Euro. 
it's 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 not and you can say that they went to average medium sector or medium type restaurants it, we all know we all eat out we all go out you come down to Killarney you're getting a three course meal for 40 45 euro maximum so but there fair, are a lot to be of fair, factors Paul, they were looking at capital cities that's what they were looking at and they used yeah, the same criteria to look at capital cities across Europe and we came out 10. Kira, I, like I said here, I, I could bring you to 20, 30 restaurants in Dublin, plenty of restaurants in Dublin. The average price of a three-course meal is nowhere near 80 euro. It is in some restaurants, but it's not in a lot of others. So, I mean, that's it's very unfair what they come out with that. But if we want to go through the cost of living and say, how is, you know, Spain, all these other places so much cheaper than Ireland? It is basically the cost of doing business. So you can't keep demanding for the price of a simple, like the biggest cost in the restaurant industry now at the moment is this wage cost. So that we have twice the high of the minimum wage in a lot of other these other countries okay, are rates. To be clear, are sorry to cut across you, Paul, but the minimum wage, the London living wage, is exactly the same as the minimum wage here. The living wage, the minimum wage in Paris, exactly the same as the living wage, minimum wage in Dublin. It's the same. I know, but I was listening to your panelists that were going on about that it's cheaper in Spain and other countries like that. They're far cheaper. So we compare like for like down in those countries. It's not fair to make a, a comparison like that. But the, pro the simple fact of the matter is when you look at rents, I know the rents are exorbitant, but there's no way that a restaurant, and here I am, defending the whole entire restaurant industry. There's no way that's being suggested that we're price gouging because we simply wouldn't be in business if I was charging exorbitant prices. We had a government that turned around and 24 hours before they came out with their cost of living crisis package, turned around and said, now we think VAT's going up. We think VAT's going up. They knew damn well that the VAT wasn't going up. And they had every single business here wondering until the last day to say, actually, no, we're going to keep it at 9%. The fact is that they don't even realise that we're trying to negotiate uh, menu prices. We're trying to negotiate with tour. No, one second, because it's important. We're trying to negotiate with uh, menu prices, with tour packages, with tour operators, trying to figure out how many staff we can bring in for a season based on that simple fact that they knew two months ago that they weren't going to increase the well, VAT. And yet they come out and they play... Well, no, they had to care because if they didn't know up until 24 hours before, and then who, who in the name of God is in government? Two months they not to, be, to be fair, to be fair, I just want to go back to our panel here. Uh, Claire, is there a difficulty, do you think, here? Is there a chance that restaurants are just going to outprice themselves for a lot of people? Well, look, you know, it's, it's not 80 euro to have a meal in every single restaurant. And I mean, you know, a lot of people are struggling. They're not having any meals out in any restaurants. But one yeah. thing you have to remember... Was it fair, is, they were looking at a three-course meal. They in were, a I do. And they probably... That's what the survey was looking at. Okay, well, well, then take this comparison. The electricity bills in Paris are less than we have here. Yeah. They're all on 20% fat. We know all of that. There's no minimum wage in Italy. So it's not really fair to compare. The two things I'll just say on this. One is a pint of milk is 30% more than it was this time last year. So take everything they're buying in a restaurant has gone up. And I don't know one rich restaurateur. Maybe it's the social circles I mix in. I, but uh, they're all struggling, as if you ask I me. Think, I think there might be quite a few rich yeah, restaurateurs well, there. But I do think it's a hard business, yeah. really we, hard. But do you, do you worry, George, that, you know, we are going to make ourselves look like Ripoff Republic is back? You know, that Ireland gets that reputation of being a really expensive place to do business, really expensive place to stay in a hotel, really expensive place to rent a car to go for a meal, you know, then that's not good for the economy either. 
See, I think there's far more important things for us to be worrying about than going out for a meal at night. I mean, I don't know, I know, don't know anybody who goes out for a meal at night who actually can't afford it. They might complain about it. They might say, oh, Jenny yeah. Mac. But, but they don't say, I can't afford this. I'm not paying my mortgage because I went to my local uh, Michelin starred restaurant. I just on, on uh, this week, I went to my local Thai in South County Dublin with the lovely Ingrid. Uh, dinner for two, a bottle of wine, 89 euro. So I don't know where, like, a lot of these so there's, numbers there's are coming. there's bargains to be had. There's bargains to be had. Of course there is, yeah. But, I mean, equally, you, you can go out for dinner and you can spend 200 quid yeah. for two, yeah. easily, right. you know? All right, look, we're going to have to leave that there for now. My thanks to Paul for joining us after the break. There's going to be a leadership election for the Social Democrats. Um, who is going to be the next leader? Do stay with us. You're very welcome back. Roisin Shorthall and Catherine Murphy have announced that they are to step down as co-leaders of the Social Democrats today, saying that now is the time to hand over the leadership reins to the next generation. With just six seats in the Dáil, will a change of leadership make or break the party? Well, my panel of Hugh O'Connell, Claire Ronan, George Hook and Owen Corrie are still with us. So, Hugh, give us the goss. Give us the <laughs> skinny. Were the, were the elbows out? Was this sort of Alan Kelly 2.0? No, it, it certainly didn't feel that way. Um, that there, you know, Alan Kelly was, was knifed by his own party uh, a, almost a year ago to the day. Uh, this seems to have been a very uh, orderly process in which um, the two co-leaders have decided and had been thinking about for some time. But there has, and there's down. been rumblings of discontent yeah, about the leadership. There's been tensions all along, I think. I mean, even if you go back to the 2019 local elections, Gary Gannon decided to run for the party, uh, for the European Parliament in Dublin. And uh, one of Catherine Murphy's close allies, uh, Anne-Marie McNally, uh, ran against him for the nomination and lost. And Gannon basically ran really without, without support from the party. Um, so those tensions have existed all the way through, I think. And I think there's a belief within the SOC Dems that the party can't really move forward as long as Catherine Murphy and Roisin Shorthall, notwithstanding all the excellent work they've done to bring the party to the fore to double its number of seats to the last election, but, you know, they are of a different political generation and I think they, they would prefer a younger, more dynamic leader who can lead the party into the uh, local and European elections next year where they'll be looking to uh, increase their number of seats and also then into the general election in, in 2024-25. OK, was there, was there fear within the party about the future of the party, about its standing, about its ability to get seats at the next election? Well, I mean, think? I think all small parties worry about their capacity to survive in the first mm. instance, but then also to build. Um, I mean, look, the Social Democrats, uh, they kind of bombed in the 2016 election. They were formed in 2015. There was a, a whole wave of uh, goodwill, I suppose, and, and that what they yeah. felt was support that could catapult them to a number of seats. But they came back with the same number of seats that they had, three. Uh, all of their three TDs yeah. were elected off really their own personal brands. So that's Catherine Roisin and Stephen Donnelly, who's gone elsewhere, as we know. Uh, but 2020 was a real surprise, I think. You know, they got Gary Gannon elected, which I think was expected. Yeah. But Jennifer Whitmore, Keno Callahan, and Holly Kearns in Core South West was the massive surprise. Uh, you know, ending Fine Gael's, uh, getting rid of Fine Gael's seat in that constituency, a huge upset. And she is... Uh, she's, know, tipped, she's the tip. She's the front runner at this tipped, stage. Yeah. Do you think, um, on the sort of co-leadership of a party, it's a pretty novel thing in Ireland, do you think that worked for the Stock Dems or did it actually affect their identity? It's a wonderful concept. It's very old. I mean, it's a 19th century, late 19th century concept which no party has ever stuck to. So it'd be very surprising if they actually try and retain it. The reality is that 
um, the Green Party was one of the great proponents of this and were going nowhere when they, they had this sort of collective leadership concept. Anybody who's done it has eventually had to succumb to the notion of a cult of a personality. It was refreshing to see, I think, cult, the big question now, will the cult of a, the personality of a single leader uh, take over and try and bring them from where they are? Because their achievements, as you just said, have been enormous. When you look back at uh, Tlán na Public, the Democratic Left, the Workers' Party, the Sinn Féin, as we used to know them, getting that sort of momentum at the early stages, two, three, and then suddenly six seats, that's... Uh, it's really difficult it, to It's achieve. very, very difficult. And it, it certainly, if the, anyone looking from the left, looking at the collapse of the... And you've got to remember, Labour had the same number of TDs in 2011 as Sinn Féin has now. So we've seen an absolute collapse of the left. The bringing together of the different forces, diverse forces of the left, is the only chance... Um, that uh, they, they have yeah. of becoming, remaining relevant to the next generation of politics. And this, it's from the Social Democrats that that momentum is coming, not from any of the other parties. OK, and I want to get to that um, sort of merger question in a minute, but I just wonder, George Hook, I mean, the two co-leaders, they're real stalwarts of the doll. They're seen as two sort of capable, hard-working um, women with a lot of experience. Do you think Holly Cairns, because she is tipped to be the new leader, is she the person to rebrand this party? Would that attract your vote? Well, as you know, I'm very slow to talk about something I know nothing about. Uh, so <laughs> I stopped you. I wasn't aware of that, to be honest, George. <laughs> so uh, I, what I am worried about is the loss of women. Like, we've seen the New Zealand Premier resign for no apparent reason. We've seen Nicola Sturgeon resign in Scotland for no apparent reason. And now we've seen, undoubtedly, two outstanding women in Dolairn uh, likely to disappear again. We, as, as a, 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 a body politic, can ill afford to lose quality women. So my concern is about the loss of women rather than, without knowledge, attempting to forecast what this party might do. Claire, as a female broadcaster, that's something I think any woman also laments good, experienced, respected women losing powerful positions? I think that it's a sad day to see two strong, capable women um, retiring today or, you know... Well, from I, leadership. From, they're, they're leadership they're from leadership. And they, are, they both said they were staying in politics. Yeah. So if the next leader is to be Holly Kearns, then she will have two good mentors. Mm. And that's very badly needed. But we need young, bright, fresh faces because I think what's happening is that the younger generation are stopping voting because there's they don't know who the people are so a bright face like hers I think could go a very long way uh, if there is this sort of rebrand within the Sock Dems who is it that they are trying to appeal to now you know where are they trying to take votes from well this is the interesting question I think there's an appetite for them to merge with Labour now, that's my own personal opinion from being out on the streets and doing Vox, Vox Pops. Yeah. And I think Even though they've dismissed that. They have dismissed it. But, you know, a week is a long time in politics, so let's see what happens. This is going to be really interesting. Do you think they think, um, Hugh, very briefly, that there's sort of votes to be taken from Sinn Féin at this point, that there's some weakness there? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, look, we've seen Sinn Féin go back in the polls since like, kind of late last year, and I think that um, all opposition parties will be trying to capitalise that because there's no doubt about it, the government is not popular 
Um, the housing crisis is, is causing them massive uh, political damage. Mm. So I think all of the opposition parties are fighting for that level of support uh, or for the maximum level of support that they can achieve. And I think Social Democrats will hope that this change in leader and, and having one leader rather than two, which is kind of a, a, a unique concept, will help drive support towards them in, in the run-up to the next election. OK, I know uh, Holly Cairns hasn't confirmed she's running yet, but we're expecting some announcements tomorrow, aren't we? We are, yeah, absolutely. All right, okay, we're going to have to leave it there. That is it from us this evening. My thanks to all of my panel for joining me. Our programme is available. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.